Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we have a guest that many in our audience will recognize right away. He's the president of the Barna Research Group. David Kinneman is the author of a number of really important and influential cultural books, such as Unchristian, You Lost Me, Good Faith, and the most recent book we're going to talk about today, Faith for Exiles. But David loves Biola. He is on our board. And actually, David, you and I went to school at the same time and lived on the same floor. So it's cool to have that history together. And I'm just thrilled about your recent book that we get to talk about today. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I absolutely remember being on the floor uh, with you and uh, this energetic basketball playing, you know, sort of apologist in training. And uh, with uh, Dr. Ray, I still need to call you Dr. Ray because no, you, you don't. <laughs> you were you were uh, uh, you, you were so kind to go to lunch and dinner and different things when I was a student at Biola. So now I'm I'm grateful to count you both as friends. Uh, in addition oh, here, here. to in addition we, to our background as bio as Biola people back in the day. Well, your recent book, Faith for Exiles, of course, is just so research-based and practical because of what you do at the Barner Group and have written it with Mark Matlock, another Biolan. But let me just jump in. Uh, the title, again, is Faith for Exiles. Can you explain to us what you mean by an exile, why you titled it this way, and kind of why you wrote this book at this moment? What is your research showing? Yeah, so I've spent the last 12 years um, focusing on the faith of this emerging generation that is millennials, Generation Z, younger, you know, sort of younger than 36, 37, sort of what's happening in the, in the faith lives of teenagers and 20-somethings, and why do they stick with faith? Why do they not stick with faith or with the church? And um, so that, that's been a big theme for me, um, just personally feel called to that, to help energize and equip a new generation of, of leaders and thinkers about what the church is becoming. And so <clears throat> I've, I've felt um, for a long time, based on the research, you know, we know a huge percentage of young people who grow up as Christian, uh, the current number is 63%, who either walk away from their faith and they become a prodigal or they walk away from active church engagement. So they were at one point pretty active uh, or they, they became a Christian through some means as a, whether family or a church experience uh, as a teenager, as a young person. And then they, they end up leaving it on the shelf. And so there was a third group of people. Um, uh, the prodigals lose their faith. The nomads walk away from church. There was a third group of people called exiles that we discovered in the research who were living in some way, they, they, they wanted to see their faith bigger than a Sunday morning experience or a youth group experience. They believe that Jesus was alive in the world and active and wanted, they want to see their faith active in the world. So my titling this book, Faith for Exiles, was really about um, trying to tell the story of these young exemplar Christians, people that are, that are growing in their faith, that are resiliently faithful, that are, despite the pressures of our uh, increasingly post-Christian society that are actually growing in faith and why that was. We wanted to turn our attention on those that are growing, uh, kind of like Daniel did in in the Old Testament. And um, so that's, that's really the heart behind it. And I've become increasingly convinced that one of the things that the American church is 
is missing, is lost sight of, is this theology of exile, that we are an exilic community that is not just from the Old Testament, but First Peter describes this. A lot of the writings of, of Paul, if you look at the uh, letters to the church um, in, in, in Revelation, where you've got these sort of like this sense of what does it mean to be an exilic community, to be faithful in the, in, in the margins. Uh, that, that to me is really the vision for this book is to empower and equip young people, especially, but those of us who support them in their faith journey to be faithful as exiles where God has called them. David, as I read through your book, uh, there were a number of things that just jumped out at me, phrases that you used to describe culture and what's going on with this generation. You used the term digital Babylon to describe the, the environment that, that we're exiled in today. And, and closely connected to that is your phrase, uh, you used the term screens disciple. Uh, I think those two things are somewhat related. What do you mean by the terms, the digital Babylon and the idea that screens disciple people? Yeah, they are closely related um, ideas. And and uh, after I did the book called You Lost Me uh, in 2011, um, I was trying to describe in a, in a quick phrase, you know, the current pressures that this generation is facing. And I don't I think I was doing an interview and I said, it was sort of like digital Babylon. And that, that, that phrase kind of stuck with me, uh, got sort of immediate traction with the interview, but also it, it struck, it's stuck with me as a way of describing, you know, we're living in a technology driven screen oriented smartphones, tablets, computers, the technological age, sort of like the printing press changes uh, everything about um, how institutions f- function, how the church conveys knowledge. Um, we, we, you know, the music industry was changed fundamentally through digital piracy. Education is changing fundamentally as people can learn what they want, when they want, at a price they want through YouTube and, and Khan Academy and other things. So Digital Babylon is my description of the new context of um, of sort of knowledge of institutions that technology is such a disruptive force many times for good but but oftentimes for um, sort of neutral or negative consequences like access to pornography is an example of the effects of digital of, of digital Babylon at no time in human history have we had the the sheer access to pornography uh, that we have today like our company Barna worked with uh, Josh McDowell, your your dad, Sean, to work through. I'm glad I clarified that that's your dad. Uh, <laughs> we, we we worked with your dad uh, on this pornography study, the the porn phenomenon. And it's not that pornography is new; that's as old as humanity. But the access to pornography is new. Access to um, thinking about the world in a new way. I call it the gospel according to YouTube. And so that is why we call it Screen's Disciple. That's the conclusion you might draw if the context is different. There's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes teaches. Um, but there is changes in culture and technology. And to be faithful with that, we, we must appropriately and biblically call it what it is. And I, I think Digital Babylon is a helpful concept. Um, and the implication is that Screen's Disciple in ways that we can't even fully fathom today. Um, and that's that's really the thesis of this project is what does it look like for us to disciple and what can we learn from those young Christians, 18 to 29, who are actually thriving in their faith today, despite those pressures? What can we learn from them? What are the best practices that help us to, 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 to really 
lean into what God is doing in, in our time today, in our current digital context. I think very helpfully in your book, and I've heard you make this point in other uh, other contexts as well, is that you contrast digital Babylon with faith in Jerusalem. What is that context that you're drawing, and how differently does it mean to disciple in digital Babylon than what you mean by, say, Jerusalem? Well, again, these are things I've been I've been thinking and ruminating on now for close to a decade, and and um, I'm. I'm not a theologian, I'm a social researcher, but it's been helpful to have great input from, from people like yourselves and others who've helped me think about this. So my, my observation of it sort of sociologically is that, you know, we live in a very Christianized context. Uh, most Americans consider themselves to be Christian. Uh, the vast majority of Americans, this is a mind-boggling statistic, but nearly seven out of 10 Americans, I believe the current number is 68% of Americans say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life. And that to me is sort of this remnant of a Jerusalem-like. And when I say Jerusalem, I mean that there are cultures and times in, in the biblical record where God's people are at the center of the story. They you know, David is on the throne or the kings of Israel are on the throne and, and Jerusalem is the capital and sort of everyone uh, can acknowledge Yahweh as the as the creator God, the one true God. And um, and everything sort of flows from that. That doesn't that doesn't mean that the times are perfect, as we see in Scripture. Um, there are particular challenges that come even when and maybe especially when um, God's people are in the majority. Um, and then you have other periods of time where it's where it's Babylon, where it's exile, where it's the city of man, where God's people are in the margins, where they are, they actually don't have as much cultural influence as they might like. And actually, America is a very unique country because we are actually both Christianized and Jerusalem-like, but we're also increasingly post-Christian, and the numbers show that there's increasing numbers of atheists among young adults. Um, we're we're in a in a fast set of changes culturally. Uh, to a more Babylon, less Christianized context. And so I just think that's a helpful comparison. And really, if you were to count the um, the stories in Scripture, and really just like the, the, the number of books of the 66 books in the Bible, more of those books were written to God's people in and uh, uh, in and around a period when they were in exile or where they were in the margins or certainly almost all the New Testament is in a context where where we're exiles, we're sojourners. Is what first first Peter is talking about, even even referencing Babylon throughout Scripture, is this this sense in which like we must remember our roots as people of exile. Um, so I think that's a really fascinating idea that the majority of the Christian scriptures today are actually written to and about what it means to be faithful uh, in an e- exile like experience, or at least they came from that. They were originated in that context, and um, unfortunately, I think what has happened in America for American Christianity um, is that we, we assume that we are actually in the majority. I think for those of us who are, <clears throat> who are evangelicals, um, you know, which is, which is only six or 7% of the U S population, there are differences of opinion about how you might measure that. But for those of us at Biola and other communities of evangelical faith, we have felt like we're in the margins. So we understand this idea of, of exile, even in a largely Christianized context, because we might all, conclude that those people are they're really cultural christians and not not real life you know born again believers uh, they, they haven't really understood the implications of their faith but that that to me is 
um, so important for us today is how do we realize that this generation isn't growing up and they don't want to have a Christianized context. They want to live, they want to see the scriptures meaningfully applied um, in the context of the faith community that, you know, in the Christian community. And, and it may or may not apply to everyone in our culture. That's a huge and, and um, um, controversial idea that these younger Christians say, you know, maybe sexual ethics isn't something we should have the whole country agree to. We should at least agree to what a sexual ethic is within our churches first and live out that ethic within that context first and foremost. So those are the kinds of tensions that I think we see between a Jerusalem and a Babylon uh, mindset. David, let's look at your book, Faith for Exiles, from a 35,000-foot level. Uh, your subtitle is, There are Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. Uh, briefly summarize, what, what are those five things that are characteristic of this group that you refer to as exiles? who are th- growing, thriving, doing well in their faith. Yeah, so so just to back up a little bit and say that part of the, the thesis behind the work that we did is to interview the 10%. Uh, we have a, a sort of a definition of a resilient disciple. And, you know, they're engaged in the church. They firmly trust the authority of the Bible. They're committed to Jesus personally. They affirm his death and resurrection. They express their faith uh, as a desi- they, they want their faith to actually impact a larger culture, not just like Sunday morning faith. So those are resilient disciples. And only 10% of those who are raised as Christian or who experience any kind of serious Christian commitment become resilient exiles. And so then what we did as researchers, we interviewed, um, you know, nearly 1500 people and we backed our way into the, the five practices that define those resilient disciples and what made them different. And research is never um, uh, causal. We can't we can't say, well, this is exactly the reason. It's not like a, an experiment where you give a certain person a drug and they, you know, the other control group they don't get a drug. But we can at least look at, 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 at correlations. And we found, to your question, Scott, um, these five sort of patterns, these practices, uh, an intimacy with Jesus. Number one, that these resilient disciples. Um, they really believe, for example, that Jesus speaks, that he that he communicates to them. They listen for his voice. They believe the Bible communicates God's intent for the world. Um, second is a cultural discernment. Um, they believe that the Bible uh, actually relates to their life and you know how it applies to every aspect of their life, from their money and their technology use and their their sexuality and all sorts of things. So there's a sense of culturally wise. They have meaningful relationships within the church. They actually want to be around other Christians and they want to emulate the lives of, of older Christians. They, they, they like the, they, they like being around other Christians. Uh, it's almost like um, it gets etched into their limbic system um, to be a, to be, to be a Christian is like, it's, it goes deep. It goes, it goes to a, a kind of a, a, a a bone marrow kind of kind of level. Um, and the third thing is counterculture. The fourth thing is uh, countercultural mission. Uh, they actually believe they have a, um, uh, they want to live differently from the world's norms. And then, uh, and then fifth, a vocational discipleship. They actually believe their life, you know, they have a calling. It may or may not be in a church, you know, like serving in a church, but they really believe that their work matters to God and that they, they, they're called into a particular type of work. So those are the five practices that we saw in the research um, that 
seem to make for a resilient faith. And the implications are really huge. I mean, what would this look for look like for us as church leaders, as institutional uh, leaders and educators like at Biola, um, even as parents, as, as young leaders ourselves? How do we this is a big thesis of the project. Like, how do we how do we lean into those five practices, hearing from Jesus, practicing cultural discernment, growing in meaningful and accountable relationships, being vocationally discipled and having a countercultural mission? You know, could Biola's community uh, embody those five practices more? Could our families embody those five practices more? Could our churches you know, create metrics for success around youth ministry and children's ministry that we said, it's not just whether you're here, you know, for vacation Bible school or whether you show up for youth group or whether you're engaged in the program, but does our program, does our preaching, does our our whole way of life lift those five practices up? And we saw that kind of evidence over and over uh, was there was a, a set of intentional decisions that leaders make uh, to help increase the, the the impact of those of those five practices, and and so that was a, a so fun to begin to realize you know some practical steps that we can take, um, you know to to really increase the quality of, of 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 the discipleship outcomes that we're that we're having in our families and in our churches. Now I want to ask you a specific question about practice number one, but I found it interesting. You said at the end of the book that in your book you lost me was about why do kids and young people leave. This book is about why do they stay? Yeah. And that's a really important distinction. So I read these five practices and thought, gosh, as a speaker, as a teacher, as a parent, which of these am I doing well and which do I need to improve on? And the first one hit me where you wrote to form a resilient identity. Now, there's a ton that's talked about today in terms of identity, whether it's tied to race or sexuality and so many levels. And I'm curious, what are the messages and means that Gen Zers and younger generations are being communicated about identity? And how do we help a new generation ultimately find their identity in Christ amidst some of these cultural messages that are coming through nonstop, especially with ubiquity of the smartphone? Yeah, I think um, that's a lot of, connects back to our our discussion a few minutes ago about um, the digital Babylon. I, I think we again, human identity is as as old as um, you know the, the the creation story that we're created in the image of God, and and this is where I think these rich theological truths can and should and must be taught um, at a deeper level. Level, and, and by the way, we expect way too little of this emerging generation in our in our pedagogical and what we teach and how we instruct them, because that we we just see this over and over both in the You Lost Me work and even back to Christian, um, uh, all the work that I've been doing the last decade is, is the church expects too little of what the next generation can learn and how they learn because we, we don't want to bore them. But sometimes you, have to, sometimes you have to just make it as complicated as it should be. Uh, and this, this sort of a theology of creation, of God being created in the image of God, you know, it's like we need really good and rich teaching on those concepts to restore the proper place of identity theologically. And, and that's, you know, when you look at the current pressures that this generation is facing, um, and, and I feel it as just a person who uses screens and social media, and it's like, it's harder, maybe, maybe you guys feel this in, in teaching and educating today as well. It's, it's harder for me um, to lead or to be um, 
you know, to, 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 to make sure I ground my own identity in what really matters, what God really says about me yeah. um, than it ever has been. Technology creates this, this interesting sense of how do we present ourselves? How do we think about our image? How do we, how do, who's, who, who are the popular brands or personalities that we're, um, that we're taking in uh, and being influenced by? How do we, how, how, what are the wrong ideas uh, about identity that we're being um, asked to, to think through or to, to embody <clears throat> from our culture? And that's, that's the whole screens disciple thesis that so often this generation is, is, uh, is taking on not only a, a particular identity, but a theology of identity that isn't biblical. And so we have a lot of work to do, I think, to, to properly ground a generation in a, the, the sort of the right theological um, ideas about identity today. David, let me go, as, as I look through those five, uh, sort of five practices that you described the re- resilient exile that characterizes four of those strike me as, you know, somewhat, if you, you know, if you think about it a little bit, th- those aren't a big surprise that they experience Jesus, they discern culture, they have meaningful relationships, they have a sense of mission. The one that I suspect would catch some, if not most people off guard would be the vocational discipleship part. Um, and I, I so this is why I so appreciate your emphasis on this. I'm so encouraged that the people who are you know, really thriving in their faith see that see their discipleship extending to the areas of life where they spend arguably most of their waking hours, which is what what they're going to do in the workplace. Uh, I guess my first question on this is why why do you think that the vocational discipleship part has been over over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, probably somewhat neglected? by a lot of our churches. Uh, and then why, why do you think it's such an important component uh, for producing these kinds of resilient followers of Christ? Well, I, I think I'll answer your second question first, which is um, right from the very beginning in, in some of the You Lost Me work, we were hearing from um, some of the stories of young entrepreneurs, science-minded individuals, young creatives, um, uh, they had a particular set of talents and, and inclinations in the world that weren't, they, they, they weren't sanctified in, in the way that, that the church might usually think about pastoral or mission driven ministry or other kinds of Christian leadership. And, and we heard story after story after story of young people who were, who were saying that the church didn't answer their complicated questions in, in relation to the to their own natural proclivities as a writer, as a designer, as a filmmaker, as a scientist, uh, as an as an entrepreneur, and so first, um, you know, in answering the question of like why is this so important, and, and we we could see that the gen- the generation is really being lost. Uh, many young people who are who are talented in ways that the church doesn't always recognize. Um, you know, they just don't see that the, that, that the Bible applies, that it, that it might matter, that Christianity might make them a better artist or creative or entre- entrepreneur or science-minded person. So that's just a tragedy uh, in, my, in my estimation. Um, and, um, and so, I, I, you know, and then conversely, when we talk to these young exemplars, these young resilient disciples, a very different picture emerged that they were able to articulate 
uh, a theology of faithful work that was clearly different than other, even those that are what we call habitual churchgoers, individuals who are, you know, they're, they're Christian, they're pretty active in all the ways that might matter and count to a typical church leader, but they're, they're not activated. And so these young people who are vocationally discipled look very different in so many different ways, especially in their practice of faith. They're integrating faith and work. They're reading about, they're hearing from others who are professionals in their communities, but they're also, who are also Christians. And so they, they, they realize that God, um, that God has called them to a particular kind of work. And I think that, um, I think the, the answers to the question of why we've neglected this um, goes really, really deep. And just a few thoughts about it is that in our current evangelical ecosystem of bigger is better ministry, um, and, and it's not wrong to try to influence as many people as you might faithfully be called to influence. And there's plenty of examples of that in scriptures or in early acts when, you know, thousands were added to their day, to, to their number and, you know, like the impact of evangelistic events, but we, we haven't really, dis- you know, discipleship isn't a mass production affair. We ha- we have to listen and hear from the unique callings of each individual. You know, you could think about a young science minded student or a young philosophically oriented student or a young um, creatively oriented student. If your youth ministry, if your work, if your church is too big to understand the unique callings and sensibilities and questions of that young person, you're, you're too big to do effective ministry and discipleship. And so that's why I think we've, we've, we've become so addicted to the, the, the bigger is better ministry models that we've lost the ability to influence educational choices, like what college do you attend and how do you think about um, the kinds of books you're reading and the kinds of things you might do and the kinds of individuals in the congregation who are interested in the same things you're interested in, you know, computer coding or entrepreneurialism or, uh, you know, uh, building a business, whatever it is. And um, so we have a a lot of of work to do. And this is, um, uh, you know, one of my most important path, like I'm so impassioned by this topic is how do we vocationally disciple this next generation? And it turns out it's actually a great evangelistic opportunity too, because the Christian way of thinking about work and about calling um, actually translates to non-Christians too. So we have a great opportunity, not only to disciple our own kids, uh, but also to think about, um, you know, what it might look like to, 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 to um, you know, to, to influence other students who are also interested in what God might have called them to do. Uh, and that's an introductory um, opportunity to, to, to the Christian way of thinking about work and faithfulness. David, as you know, at Biola, we are the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And I found it interesting and not surprising that in your research, you indicated that the lived reality of resilience is that the Bible is authoritative and central to their faith. And yet on page 110, you say this generation is the first to form their identities and their perception of church amid high-profile sex abuse scandals and sky-high levels of church skepticism. So how would the generation that has seen abuse at the hands of pastors and preach preachers and church leaders give them a, a healthy sense of biblical authority? What are maybe some practical things we can do to help pass this on to exiles? Well, I think that skepticism and cynicism and um, a, a more you know current word is snarkiness uh, is one of the uh, we're, we're building antibodies of um, of skepticism and and 
cynicism and snarkiness in this generation. That's part of the screens disciple idea that, you know, when you watch YouTube or comedians today, or, you know, just like, like what, what we laugh at as a culture, um, we're, we're, we think uh, the research shows that it's harder than ever to be earnest, to be sincere, to be perceived as sincere, because you're probably just selling something. You're, you're probably, a you know, mm. Michael Scott from the office. Uh, you're probably just a, sh- a schmuck who's, you know, you, you're, 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 you know, you're sort of, a a, a pedantic blowhard, whatever it is. Right. So I, I, you shouldn't underestimate, and this is something that is just plain as day from the future. You should not underestimate as, if you're, you know, if you're a pastor, if you're a, a theologian, if you're a student, um, if you're a young person today, we should not overestimate the level of toxicity in our culture of mistrust of those who are trying to communicate from the heart about something. But it, it, it's, it could be something as innocuous as, uh, you know, a, a helpful salesperson in a, in a store to a preacher. But we live in a culture that is increasingly giving way to cynicism and to snarkiness. And so what we find in these resilient disciples, and they're not perfect by any means, but, but these 10% of people that we've been talking about, these young exiles, is that they they go often enough to the scriptures and to Christian community, and they seem to, you know, all the things that we might really hope that the gospel does in people's lives, that it orients them not around their own priorities or their own sense of rightness or wrongness or victimhood, but it orients them around a different set of ideas about the way the world works. So they still might be cynical. They still might be, they still might be given to snark at times. Uh, but, but they, but they, but at their best, at their best moments, they're, they're, they're likely not just to turn to some sort of internal moral compass, but they say, God, like you, you want to confront my sin. You want to confront who I am. You want to restore me to your original intent. So it's a, it's actually just like a, I get so excited about this study because on one level, we're actually finding sociological evidence that the gospel works in at least 10% of this 18 to 29 year old segment that we interviewed. Like you can actually see that they, they relationally are different. They're, um, they're vocationally different. They're like, I would want to hire, even if I was a non-Christian person who didn't care anything about faith, I would want to hire these kinds of people. I would want to be neighbors with these kinds of people. I would want to be, you know, have these people babysit for me because they, they, they seem to have a different, they live counterculturally. Um, and, and so, you know, again, they're not perfect, but, but there's some evidence here that, that Christianity is both true to them and it's also good for who they are and what and who they're becoming as human beings. Um, and so that, that to me is just, uh, we, we should, you know, um, shout this from the rooftops in terms of evidence that, that God is actually working in the lives of these young people and, and, you know, bringing about a certain sort of, um, community that is making a difference, um, in, in small and in big ways. But that's a, that's a really cool story. That's encouraging. And that's neat to hear that your data is showing that because there's a tendency, as you highlight in the book, to be really negative and critical of this generation. In fact, I noticed how you mentioned young adults are less likely to hold negative views of adults than adults do of them. That's really interesting. How we think about this generation and what we highlight in the stories we tell really shapes how we minister to them. 
And in your book, Faith for Exiles, I hope all of our listeners will pick it up. I noticed everything you say is research-based. There's a couple lines I read. I'm like, wait a minute, this is two lines of the book, but he has a whole study backing up this point. So it's easy to read. Their stories is practical, but it's based on the research you very, very carefully do. So I hope everyone listening to this who cares about the next generation, which should be all of our listeners, will pick up your book, uh, Faith for Exiles. So David, thanks for your ministry, just your contribution to the body of Christ and for coming on the show today. Sean, Scott, it's a pleasure. I love you guys as brothers and I appreciate um, our friendships. And obviously this is a great conversation, um, uh, you know, just, just about the, the work we're doing, but you know, so much of what I've been learning affects who I am as a dad, how we think about uh, my role as a trustee at Biola. I mean, like um, we get to live together um, in this period of time that is just, it's so exciting. I mean, what God is up to, it's a, it's a interesting and confusing and sometimes feels scary time. Um, I think we should acknowledge that that's the case, but it's, it's an amazing privilege that God has chosen us to be alive today, to think about our current context, to be as you guys are, you know, instru- instructors and influencers there at Biola. You know, he's given me a chance to lead this company, Barna, <clears throat> and I'm just so grateful for that uh, because we live in such a an unprecedented. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, but there's never been technology like this either. You know, and so like mm. like like we get a chance to to think about what it means to be faithful in a in a completely new uh, time period, and and the exciting part of that is. And this is what's so cool about a mission like Viola is guess what guys, it's not even our job to figure it all out. It's simply to cheer on and to provide, um, you know, the, the support structure for this new generation of exiles who are in fact going to have to live um, when all of their kids and their kids, kids will be born in a, in a period of time that's unprecedented. Right. So we just get a, we just get a um, be the Mordecai's, to this generation's esters uh, to come along and say, you know, for such a time as this, you're being called to learn what it looks like to be faithful in a time of rapid change and disruption. Uh, and these aren't, these aren't brand new questions. That's why f- philosophy, the training that you guys have done for this generation is so important, you know, f- understanding these things, teasing them out because they're, they, they just seem to echo the kinds of questions that previous generations have also asked. They're just asking them in new ways. Um, so it's how important that is. And again, just, just uh, love you guys, appreciate the ministry you guys do. And, and just wanted to, to leave on that note, what an encouragement um, I feel about the opportunities we have in this current moment um, as Christians. It's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy time, but what a cool time to be alive and to be faithful to what God's calling us to do. David, we love you Thanks, too. David. Love your family and are just grateful for for everything you're doing and standing for. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate that. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, David Kinneman, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.